Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. My guest today is Tom S. Lehman, who goes by Middlemarch on Twitter. Tom is the creator of ETHscriptions, an NFT standard for inscribing Base64 encoded URIs in the data field of EVM transactions. Prior to ETHscriptions, Tom was the co-founder and CEO of popular lyric site and content company, Genius. ETHscriptions are inspired both by Bitcoin inscriptions and the Ethereum practice of appending hex-encoded UTF-8 strings to the data field of regular transactions, a gesture that's been used by hackers and artists to communicate on-chain for years. The best way to think of ETHscriptions is as an alternative to smart contracts. Instead of executing and verifying logic on-chain inside of a function call in an EVM smart contract, ETHscriptions leave the validation of minting and transfer events to off-chain indexers, which can follow the protocol's standard to decide whether transactions mutated ETHscription state or not. Instead of reverting invalid transactions when they're sent, ETHscriptions indexers ignore them, despite their successful inclusion in the chain. This makes ETHscriptions a more Bitcoin-style protocol experiment, where a new software reads new meaning into data stored using existing rudimentary blockchain affordances. At the same time, ETHscriptions is an artistic meditation that questions the presumed legitimacy of L2s and NFT standards like ERC721, which both make certain assumptions about how meaning should be stored and computed on Ethereum and other EVMs. It was fantastic talking with Tom, who's an energetic builder and independent thinker. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, this show is provided for entertainment and education purposes only and does not constitute financial advice or any form of endorsement or suggestion. Crypto is risky, and you alone are responsible for doing your research and making your own decisions. Welcome. What's up? I saw you uh, released that tool. Oh, yeah. The, the little uh, uh, metadata thing. Yeah, a little metadata. Refer- it's a very simple uh, thing, but it's dope. It's handy. I did this uh, on chain NFT uh, metadata thing, and the metadata changes all the time. It's got like a timer in it. Uh, so the, even if nothing else changes, just the clock has to change. So, uh, yeah, I encountered this problem with the OpenSea caching not updating and, everyone, you know, the refresh metadata meme. And, uh, yeah, there's no endpoint for it. So I made that little thing. So if, uh, if anyone has, maybe it's not, uh, I guess, inscriptions don't have this problem right now. Maybe, the, I guess, the Emblem Weaver vault stuff would. If there's right, if, The Emblem vault stuff would. I mean, anything that is, but no, there's no, um, I guess there's not really and we're working on this, there's not really like metadata in the actual protocol in any real way. It's just like, there's just the data and the data can have like metadata in it or it can be JSON or whatever, and that's fixed. But if you want to do like a generative thing, you can have, you know, some kind of HTML file and that HTML file can call out to, you know, anything. But I guess in OpenSea, there is that event, but you can't use the event because the event has to be a transaction. Yours needs to be like every 10 minutes or every second or something. Yeah. And the other thing is that the event, yes. So it's transaction bound. Also, if you have delegated metadata on your contract, so it's like a separate contract that provides the metadata, then you can't emit the event on that contract and have it bubble up to the contract where the NFT, the the quote unquote collection. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's another problem. And as you point out, even if I could do that, if the clock is counting down, let's say every hour or minute or something, still need to update it even more frequently. So I I think what would really be the best would be if just OpenSea puts out an endpoint for refresh the collection. And then you still have to have some kind of cron job call it, but it would be something. Um, But there's just too many NFTs, I imagine, for that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a very tricky uh, problem, you know? And I think gets to kind of like a lot of this stuff when people are like, oh, indexers... 
I'm scared. The indexer is going to kill me. You know, that's how people say, but that's how I, I can see the fear in their eyes. You know, <laughs> are we relying too much on off-chain indexers and the indexers are scary, but it's like the problem you're talking about right now, you know, you're just casually living your life. And you're like, well, I got to build this. But really, if you were an indexer alarmist, you'd say, what? Are you kidding me? OpenSea doesn't reflect the state of the blockchain. What if there's an NFT that has metadata that says, go buy ETH because the price is good and that's out of date and I buy it and I go, what? This isn't, you know, so that's like the, um, you know, when, when the indexer is familiar, like in the case of OpenSea or EtherScan, everyone's just like, doop to do, this is normal. I'll, I'll work around this and build my, I'll build my life around this, you know, like the song uh, Landslide. And now uh, with a new thing, it's like you are, how dare you? So yeah, I think it's a fascinating thing. Totally. So, okay, we're going to talk about ETH description state. There's three big topics. Well, actually two big topics that I want to talk to you about. We talked a little bit on DM about uh, what you hate most about L2s. Uh, so that's one topic, which is kind of in a way off topic. Uh, although maybe not uh, because ETH descriptions is like this. And that's the other big topic, ETH descriptions, obviously how it works, everything, all the details. Because it, in a way, it is kind of like an alternative L2, right? It, it is a different way of looking at augmenting the chain. So I give you the well, choice. Well, I am tweeting. Just to, full disclosure. Sorry, Ravi. Just full disclosure. I just tweeted. You can see it. I'm trying to create controversies. I tweeted, Inscriptions is not like an L2. Join us to discuss. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm undermining the premise, okay, to create energy and confusion. But anyway, go on. Sorry. I Make sure to comment uh, on that. Uh, anyone listening? Um Pick sides. Picking sides is very important in social media. So if we want to make this topic relevant, we need to increase the vociferous nature of this conversation. So I give you the choice. Do you want to talk about uh, what's wrong with L2s? Or do you want to talk about each descriptions first? We'll get to both either way. Well, I'm, uh, I'm about halfway through the movie Inception. And okay. not to spoil anything, but there's a part of the movie where they're talking about like something and then the, you know, how are we going to incept this? person or whatever, and no spoilers, but one guy says, positive emotion always outweighs negative emotion. A wow. character says that in the movie. And so, you know, uh, I, yeah, it's a good movie. And um, somebody go with that. So yeah, so what is, what is descriptions? Yeah, yeah um, what is descriptions? So, okay, so what are the descriptions? All right, so, well, one way to think about this is uh, what is Ethereum, okay? And, you know, first of all, no one knows what this is. If you're in this room, you actually know what Ethereum is, you are... Point nine, nine, a lot of nines. Okay, there's like five nines is a, is a meme, five nines. And the reason for this is that most people think Ethereum is the name of a cryptocurrency. So they say, what's the price of Ethereum? Some people within the Ethereum community actually call Ether, which is the actual name of the cryptocurrency, uh, they call that Ethereum. And when they do that, I don't say anything out loud, but I lower them in my mind in terms <laughs> mute, of like the level. The so, yeah, I mute the account basically. I don't block them. They're never going to have the satisfaction. I'm never sort of blocking. Why would you give someone the satisfaction of knowing? I just mute. But no, I, I actually don't mute. I've probably said it myself. I've, I've never said it myself. But the, the point being, the actual nature of Ethereum is too revolutionary for the human mind to grasp, really. In other words, cryptocurrency is pretty revolutionary. It's like made up money, magic internet money famously. And finally, uh, you can grasp that and that's it. You're done. But you can't grasp another thing, which is a magic internet computer thing that we can all use and runs on magic internet money and is a whole economy. And it's crazy. So Ethereum is a computer. It's a cloud computing solution that lets you do stuff on it without working uh, in uh, a serfdom, uh, so to speak, with a giant corporation. So if you want to do a calculation, you can do it on Amazon AWS, which I do often. And it's great. It's cheap. Uh, or you could do it on Ethereum where it's like a trillion times more expensive, but you aren't uh, Amazon's, you know, uh, you're not in Amazon's back pocket. 
And so what is Ethereum? Ethereum is a way to uh, compute, uh, to have protocols, i.e. like interact with other people in predefined ways, to store data uh, in a way that is not in a corporation's back pocket and maybe lasts a really long time. So that's really good, right? Uh, if you want to say a message and not have it deleted, it's better to do that on Ethereum than it is to put it on Amazon's server. If you want a protocol, and a protocol is just like a shared way of doing stuff, like a protocol with you know, NFTs or whatever. It's like, who owns something? Like if you want to track ownership uh, or you want to see, okay, who's number one in fantasy football or any protocol that has state to it, uh, if you do that on Amazon, you might lose it all, right? Like Amazon might delete it, who knows? So Ethereum is a great place to do this. So Ethereum is awesome. And um, I just can't emphasize this up. If you know what Ethereum is, you are very few people know what Ethereum is. You think, so you think it's that few? Really, uh, I guess you've got the zero. exposure. Basically you, zero people. Really, really. Because you've got the exposure. Now, I talk you've got to the normal account. people sometimes. Yeah. Well, but also with these inscriptions, I'm sure you've got lots of people coming out of the woodwork trying to gamble, essentially, and not really knowing much. So you have even more exposure to, to what the masses think. Well, it's just I think people at best think of it as, okay, it is a... Um, I mean, some people know like the catchphrase programmable money, but just like, you know, to, 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 to understand the real thing is to say, okay, anything you can do on a computer in your house, you can do on Ethereum. Like that equivalency is not very, I think, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's a powerful idea. Now, the problem with Ethereum and the reason Ethereum is bad and will never work is that it's too expensive, okay? This is one of the most shocking things for someone who uh, is new to it and who first learns the potential of this thing, as I did once, uh, and then has that collide with reality, right? Where you're like, oh my God, okay, time to register an ES name, $150. That's how much it costs me to register in gas, middlemarch.eth. And as I was doing it, I was like, this is weird. Why am I spending so much money on this? But of course I was, you know, gleefully whatever in the game and loving Ethereum. And so I did it. And over time I uh, did more stuff like that. And, you know, at a certain point it catches up to you. think this will never work. You know, this is, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's like in Zoolander. He says, what is this? A school for ants. You know, this is like the opposite. It's like a cloud computing platform for rich people. For, for whales. You know, and, 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 <laughs> For whales. Precisely. Thank you. That's exactly. For whales. Is it, what is this? For whales? And we are ants. Uh, if you're in this room, you're an ant. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking whales. at the thing. And yeah, exactly. It's a database for whales. Exactly. And so it's like, it's not going to work. Uh, and that's quite a shame because there's nothing else like it. And sorry, I know there's like, you know, other chains, but like, you know, it's religion. You have to pick a religion where it's really a shame. So Ethereum is uh, great, but expensive. Inscriptions is let's see if we can improve the situation. Let's see if we can do something where you get the benefits of Ethereum. This is like a classic pitch. You get almost all the benefits of using like normal way Ethereum uh, at 140th of the cost. So if you want to do an NFT, you want to create an NFT uh, or do, you know, NFTs at a 40th of the cost and almost as good. That's kind of the core pitch. So, you know, don't worry about inscriptions. If A, you don't care about Ethereum stuff and decentralization, don't worry about it. It's not for you. Don't worry about inscriptions. If you're a whale, you can just use NFTs and regular Ethereum. Don't worry, it's not for you. But if you care about decentralization, okay, you care about not being in every corporation's back pocket and having every second just being manipulated by them, and you are an ant, or at least you're not a whale, uh, inscriptions can open up a lot of new frontiers in terms of uh, letting you use uh, this decentralized technology for cool stuff and not having to go broke. So that's kind of the idea basically behind it. Got it. So uh, let's walk through how one is actually made because I'm sure some people out there still don't know. Um, and, and yeah, uh, maybe can you, can you take us through what the steps are to make one? Sure. So how do you create these scripts? So first of all, I want to drop here. And um, I just want to say, if anyone wants to take a look at this, I'm dropping a new docs site, not DOX, but if you go to docs, D-O-C-S, short for documentation, it's not public, but I'm working on this. So I just want to 
promote that. If anyone wants to give me feedback, I'm always looking for free Shit, how uh, advice. But basically in the description, yeah, free alpha. Yeah, Inscriptions.com yeah, and it's like a section on the site or something? It's not actually linked there. It's just a subdomain. So it's docs, oh, D-O-C-S okay. dot inscriptions.com and you can, um, you know, uh, see how I, uh, you know, how the protocol deals with like some, you know, there's a lot of annoying stuff behind the scenes. So if you want to learn some of that, you can go there. Anyway, how is it created? Every inscription starts in the same way as every other thing on Ethereum. Okay. How do things on Ethereum happen? Like we were talking about this a moment ago, like things on Ethereum don't just happen, right? They have to be uh, made to happen, initiated by these things called transactions. So every time anything happens on Ethereum, there's a transaction. Okay. And the person, there is a, an EOA, i.e. a person or someone who's pretending to be a person, someone with a private key, an end operated account or a user, whatever. The, the, the point is the, owned, yeah. Yeah, externally owned account. Exactly. A, wa- a wallet. So there's an externally owned... From most people's perspective, a wallet. Exactly. Something with a private key. Okay, because that's the core thing. These things are signed by something. And if you don't know how that works, like no one... <laughs> it's just, it's just trust me. It's a private key. It's fine. I don't even really know how it works. And a transaction is initiated by EOA. This is so important because contracts don't do anything, right? They cannot initiate anything. They cannot do anything. They just sit there until an EOA uh, does something. All of the creative energy... And all the Ethereum comes, uh, initiates from transactions that are created and signed by EOAs. And EOAs are people or people that are, are things that are functioning as, as people. So and if we you should, are doing we a contract interact... Parenthetically, uh, in 2023, for now, that's the case. True, but... Well, we well, we are living now. Sure. We are living now, so it's good. I would say, but this is kind of this philosophical side, because I would say forever, uh, or they could change Ethereum. Well, you know, account so, abstraction... That, that, <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, yeah, and I think the so we should talk about that because I don't get the account abstraction thing, and I think uh, there's some weird thing going on with the account abstraction thing, but it does not make sense to me because you can't just change that. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, Maybe sure, you can explain that to me because I don't, I don't get it. But the um, uh, okay, so anyway, you want to interact with a smart contract or creating trips, it's the same thing, uh, it's the same starting point, and in fact, the technology that you are using, the sort of you know, thing is, is the same even within a transaction because it is a space in the transaction called input data, okay, which is sort of like the notes field is one way to put it. It's sort of like, uh, it's another name, it's call data. The idea is you send a transaction, you can send Ether, the native cryptocurrency, but you can also send other information or at least attach other information to uh, the transaction so people can see it. And so this is how you do a contract interaction when you mint, for example, you, you send Ether, like you send like 0.1 ETH or 0.01, let's be real, we're, we're answering, you said 0.01 to the contract. And then in the input data, in the call data, in the notes field, you write, I want to call the mint function and I want to mint five tokens to myself. Okay, and this is how the standard contract interaction works. Inscriptions is basically taking that same idea and saying, create a transaction, put information in the call data, except don't send it to a smart contract. Right. right. Just send That's it directly, directly to another address that belongs most likely to a person uh, with a private key Correct. on the other end. So I could send you, Correct. middlemarch.eth, a transaction with uh, some transaction data. Uh, normally, because it, yours is an externally owned account, it's not going to do anything when that data hits. But Eatscriptions interprets is like a, a way of reading the transaction data in transactions and interpreting them as as representing NFTs, which in a lot of ways, so are smart contracts. Uh, there are some, some differences, but I guess the main difference is, well, maybe let's finish out how you actually mint one. So people, I'm sure some people know, but uh, let's get that into people's minds. And then we can talk about what some of the implications are of having that 
different philosophy about writing software for Ethereum. Sure. So you can... So exactly, what we just said is exactly true. And there are a bunch of different protocols, though, you could make on top of this idea that wouldn't necessarily be... That wouldn't be inscription. So inscription specifically has a format for the data you send. You can't just send any old data. If you could send any old data, there would be a zillion inscriptions out there because people have been doing this for a long time. This isn't a new idea. I didn't make this up. But I did make up a very specific way of doing it that was easy to work with. Okay, so instead of just putting text in there, uh, what you do is in this notes field, in this input data field, you put what's called a data URI. Okay, a data URI is just a fancy way of saying uh, it's data plus information about what type of data it is. So it could be like image data, like PNG image data, and then it also says that it's a PNG. So you know what to do with the data uh, when you get it, basically. So it's basically and, just like know, a long, str- long string of text. Most of it is like garbled. You can't really tell what, it, what's, what data is included there, but right at the beginning, it's going to announce, hey, this is an image. So interpret this as an image. Correct. And you know, that is you know, a pretty standard way of doing data interchange stuff, pretty normal. And then, and if you send one of those, okay, you put that in input data, the two of the transaction will be, according to the protocol, the owner of that. Um, so if I send to middlemarch.eth, of that description. you'll become the owner, I'll be the creator, and your indexer will, or any, anyone else who writes an indexer, whether they're using your, your implementation or, or something they write themselves, will follow the rules of Ethscription and determine, oh, looking at all the transactions that have ever happened on Ethereum, here's one that corresponds to the, the protocol, the Ethscription's protocol, and thus I will show an NFT on this website, for example. Precisely. And then it gets more complicated because there is, you know, with protocols, you often have this notion of state where, you know, you're creating this like imaginary world. And now, you you know, like NFTs, of course, have a ton of state, like ownership and, you know, often, you know, fancy on-chain NFTs will have more state or whatever. So it's like you're creating this like world that you can kind of live in and do interesting stuff like trade things, not just look around. So inscriptions has state and state is some of the state is unchanging, like the creator of an inscription never changes, but the owner will change. And so there's a way of sending an inscription to someone else. There's other ways too. But the main way, I guess today, is if you take an inscription's ID, okay, and that is the ID that is uh, the same thing as the transaction hash of the transaction that created the inscription. Mm-hmm. So if you create an inscription and go to Etherscan, you can see in the URL, there's this long, you know, 66 character garbled thing. Zero you X, can use that and that over. is your... Precisely, yes. And so you can take that and put that in the call data, the input data of another transaction and send that transaction to someone and provided you are the owner at the time you send that transaction, that will be a, um, a valid transfer. And so if you are uh, creating an indexer or a explorer for the protocol, uh, you would need to store uh, every transfer that happens and then you know make sure that you filter out the ones that are legitimate, i.e. the ones that are sent by the actual owner, and then you can trace that, uh, you know, transfer chain to the end. And then the, the two on the final transfer is the current owner. And so that's how if you wanted to create a uh, site for trading or a site for viewing like NFT style, you'd be able to compute the current owner. And that's the kind of core of the thing, the existence of the thing, the creator, and then the current uh, owner. So for example, Nicholas.eth sends base64 encoded data colon image PNG, something, something, something. I send you a little picture to middlemarch.eth. And then middlemarch.eth can send a transaction where the TX data is the hash of that first transaction where I created the, the inscription. You can pass it on to somebody else by sending them that hash. And the indexers are kind of the ones that 
surface the information and check the veracity of the claims so that if you then send the same transaction hash again to somebody, that transaction will be ignored because you no longer own the NFT. Correct. And then actually there is another element of state too that I did not mention, which is important, which is that all inscriptions are unique. Yes. So if you create an inscription and then you say, okay, I'm creating this, but there's another inscription with a lower block number or a lower transaction index in the same block number, and it has the exact same content, then uh, yours, the second one, the duplicate one, will not be a valid description, will be ignored. Now it'll be on the, you know, it'll be on the blockchain and the data's there and you can check it. And maybe there's another protocol that someone makes that says it's okay. But from the inscription standpoint, uh, it does not exist. And anything claiming to show a list of inscriptions uh, cannot include that under the uh, uh, protocol. And so that's another thing that you have to keep track of when you are, you know, creating an explorer or an indexer for this. You kind of, you have to know you know, the whole history, basically, to know what's, what's, what's valid. So I wanted to ask you about this. I had a few questions. First of all, why ignore du- duplicates? What's the philosophical or engineering reasoning behind that? So, yeah, so the duplicates thing was a quirky move, basically. Um, <laughs> you know, it, uh, typically not a good move for a protocol to do that because it's now very, very difficult for a lot of things. And, it's, you know, it's a lot of problems. But I think the idea is basically kind of getting at just like the, it's just the fun. It's about fun, Mm -hmm. basically, because if you look at anything out there right now, everyone's always talking about firsts. Like everyone has this thing where they say, intellectually, I know firsts don't matter. Just look at the history of science. Like who was the first person to uh, discover oxygen? Such a statement doesn't, you know, that's what people say, right? Firsts don't matter. Priority claims are irrelevant. But then everyone's like, I'm the first, blah, blah, blah. I'm the first this, this, this. So it's like a, a kind of homage to that everyone's going uh, to see, duality uh, and that paradox. Sure, everyone's going to see Oppenheimer this weekend for, for a reason. Right, exactly. So yeah, people just want to know the first. So the idea was basically uh, you can make a copy that is exactly visually identical and that will not, you know, that'll be a first of its own. But if you want to know that exact, exact, exact thing, uh, you know, and it creates some issues front running and all kinds of problems or whatever. But like, uh, if you were an artist, and it's just like, there is just one, it's just one thing. I think that's, a thing that everyone will do anyway. And I'm just saying, hey, the indexers, the protocol maintainers, everyone, we're going to take it off of everyone's plate and just centralize, not centralize, but like, yeah, centralize. It's going to be part of the protocol that you have to do this. You have to do this thing that everyone wants to do uh, uh, anyway. And um, and yeah, it's also digital artifact. You know, I just think that artifact is like singular. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, uh, you know, uh, contents. Like, yes, every transaction has a transaction hash and every transaction is singular. But like, if we're talking about artifacts, like content is content. And I think a better way to do this would say, you know, it's like IPFS, it's content addressable, but then that creates other problems too. But yeah, it's a weird move uh, and it's causing problems. <laughs> Definitely problems. Con- it's, it's, it's tough, it's annoying. Content addresses. I mean, I, I, I was kind of introduced to content addresses through developing NFT contracts and encountering IPFS in that context. And IPFS has all kinds of deficiencies, but actually content addresses are very cool because it means you can rely... like you can really know where something is. It's, it feels like a major upgrade over something like, like magnet links in torrents. Those are typically lists of trackers, right? Or you have some identifier, but there's also where you can find it. But IPFS is... I mean, I have no idea what torrents look like, so I couldn't... Sure. Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't know right. about that. So, <laughs> uh, so this also kind of like, you mentioned that there were other people doing things previously. The first example of it that I know of, maybe you know of another one, is uh, the boobies on the blockchain. Uh, which is a reference that I picked up from Zero X Mon's project, where in his blog post about, I think it's called Cthulhu V2, he mentions this boobies on the blockchain project from, I believe, 2016. Uh, but you can, we can double check the, the dates on the transactions. But someone basically did a similar process, but they weren't, I think, 
the I'm not sure that they were putting the same format as you've chosen for each description. So a little less standardized, but someone put images of breasts from uh, medieval artwork on, uh, you know, like super crunched down uh, bitmaps and put them on the blockchain in a similar way by, by loading them into the transaction data. But in your docs, you also mention uh, this hacker, the poly network hacker who was using it kind of like speculating, oh, Ethereum could be a kind of decentralized Snapchat or because they were using it to communicate with the uh, the network that they hacked, if I understood the context right. Does two things. One, is there any part of that in particular that inspires you the most? And two, uh, did you think at all about designing it to be backwards compatible, to be able to sort of include these older things in the network or is that not important? I think... Uh, I have not seen the. I try to Google just the boobies. I'm interested in that. I think, um, yeah, I mean, the boobie, that boobie thing sounds cool. I mean, I think that, you know, the earliest one, right, is the Bitcoin uh, Genesis block one, where that's the inspiration for everything. Chancellor on the verge of second bailout for banks. Okay, it's basically just like saying, watch out, Chancellor, we're building the magic internet money thing, so we're going to get back to you. But, you know, it's a political statement, so it's a cool thing. I think the um, the polyhacker thing to me was just cool, and everyone should look this up. It's linked on the new doc site and the old one, where you know this person is basically saying like, "I'm a refugee." Now, obviously, they stole six hundred million dollars, so they're not exactly a refugee, but like they're sort of saying, "I'm a refugee." Hey, have sympathy. Right? I can't use anything but this. Now, of course, there are reasons for this, and they're sort of saying, "If you're a refugee, like this is a way you can communicate." And um, that uh, was really uh, important for me to see that. And also just like the idea, I think is like a super cool idea using, you know, Ethereum to, uh, you know, trend, uh, communicate in a low cost way. And of course, in that particular case, it led to the recovery of a lot of money. I don't know how it would have happened uh, otherwise. So I just thought that was a cool, weird cultural phenomenon. Absolutely. And it is very crypto native that a hacker, it kind of emerges from hacker culture because it's the only way that they can communicate privately. Right. Right. And it's also just a feeling of going to Etherscan. And Etherscan is a pretty dope website, but like, go to Etherscan, you see the input data, and it shows you in hex. Hex is like an encoding way of doing things. And then you click UTF-8, and boom, out pops a message. And it's like, that's a crazy feeling, because it's like, oh my god, like this stuff's hidden uh, everywhere. I didn't really think about backwards compatibility, to be honest. Like, I just think the semantics are, you know, kind of weird. It's like, if you're sending a message to someone, it's like a message versus something they own. I was quite surprised that there were so few data URIs ever. There were like 10 ever. Oh, so there are, there are grandfathered in ones because they were data URIs. Correct. Yes, I, uh, I, I, there's about 10. The first one in 2016, uh, if you go to eScriptions.com slash eScriptions slash zero, you can address them by their number in order, zero, uh, you can see. And um, it's a very funny image of a cat. It's a meme of a cat staring off into the distance oh, and the yeah. text is human society shall be enciphered, which is sort of a weird wow. uh, text. Oh, oh, geez. <laughs> iconic meme. Seven years ago. Yeah, awesome. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's cool. But uh, yeah, I use Google Big Data for this. If anyone wants to know how you search call data historically, it ain't cheap. All right, it's like five bucks a query. So get it right, you know, if you're using this big data thing. So, so what would a, que- yeah, a, a query in that would be, like how specific is a query in that? What, what are you searching for? Anything that starts with data colon or something? Yes, else? basically okay. in the end, yes, that. And I searched for a bunch of other things to try to validate it, but I, it's, it's hard because how do you actually like, I mean, someone, I forget who, linked me to this BigQuery thing because without the BigQuery thing, there's no way to search it. Maybe you the graph? Like, I guess it's not emitting events, so you can't, can you just I don't, yeah, do I don't call data like that? Does, 
To be honest, the graph is another thing I've never quite totally understood if someone wants to explain it to me, but I don't think the graph or any of these things has call like call data is just not typically like indexed in this. Yeah, I don't know. Way, I, I don't, don't think know. like we should look into that. But uh, in any case, yes, it is. It is certainly using the graph is more complicated. By the way, if anybody's curious, it's uh, boobies.surge.sh, S-U-R-G-E.sh. If you want to see that boobies on the blockchain thing, the website's kind of falling apart, but you can get to the transactions where they sent, uh, oh, actually maybe you can. <laughs> I'm not sure the links work either anymore, but you can take a look. I think this says 2017, 2,185 days ago. Pretty good. So I wanted to ask you more about the indexer, speaking of BigQuery. So what, what does the indexer do? Because you mentioned that it's like easy, I think you call it, to write the indexer. So what are the steps of creating an indexer if you wanted to, to think about doing something like that? Yeah, as part of these docs changes, I'm going to eliminate where I say that. Uh, <laughs> when I first launched the protocol, <laughs> because I built it quite fast, uh, the indexer, uh, when I first launched it, I thought, yeah, it's not so bad. Uh, it's not easy. Okay, I, I will take that back. Uh, there are a lot of uh, tribulations and so forth, trials as well also. So basically a couple of important things on the indexer. So one is that um, there are edge cases, okay? And that's, you know, annoying. So like, here's an example. When you create an inscription, the two on the transaction is the owner of the inscription, okay? What if there is no two? When? When does that happen? How might that happen? Right. I know, it's like, you really got to learn this, like, nerd stuff. No, when you, if you create a contract, oh, and the bytecode of that contract is a validated URI, there's no two, and you're, anyway, so this because who, only happens. How do the transactions work when you deploy a contract? You're sending them to, like, a pre-compiled address or something? Something, I don't know, to the blockchain. I think this is, like, I don't know that much about how it's theory works, basically, shit. but yes. Okay, we should find There's out. no... Yeah, there's no two. And in, in, a, in an Etherscan, they will show you two brackets contract created like right. to sort of pretend that it's going to the created contract. There's no two when you get from like alchemy or in real life or whatever. And so anyway, you have to deal with stuff like that. That only happened once and only because someone was playing around with it. So that's pretty unlikely that that would happen. But uh, when it does happen, it grinds the whole thing to a halt. So this is like the key with an indexer is because uh -huh. there is state, you have to do everything in order. And so if something unexpected happens, you have to stop doing everything and just wait, basically. Because if you continue processing, uh, depending on how you resolve that weirdo thing that happened, that might affect the you know the state. So, like for example, uh, in this particular case, uh, if this was a valid inscription, even there was when there was no two, then that would you know affect other inscriptions with the same data later. And of course, transfers are very uh, you know order dependent as well. And so the the number one rule is you have to go one transaction at a time in order. And if something weird happens, you blow up and just don't do anything until it's fixed. So if an indexer falls behind, people can't rely on it. So that means you have to kind of watch this thing and make sure it doesn't blow up. And so, you know, there's edge cases uh, like that. And there's the one at a time issue like that. And so one at a time means like really one at a time. So you have to do a bunch of like, you know, basically a bunch of work to make sure you don't uh, mess that up. And then there's also edge cases surrounding like how exactly do you compute the hashes and convert to UTF-8 and what's about the URI. But the biggest thing by far actually is this notion of reorgs, which is this idea. Mm. Actually, this is once you once I, I think it works now. I've tried a lot, uh, but not so bad now. If you really figure it out, but just like the idea of it is very scary. Which is the Ethereum blockchain sometimes changes, right? The most recent blocks can change. Every block can change. I guess I don't know all the details of this, but I thought this never happened. But it turns out it happens a lot. Yeah. And so I don't For know why everything works. 
right? You really, it's only one block, but sometimes by the time you figure it out, a couple of blocks have passed or something. So it can be like three blocks that you have to, so basically you have to periodically check. And if you discover that there is a reorg, that the block hash has changed, you have to kind of kill the blocks that are now compromised and re-index those. And, you know, it's a whole, and you it's can, a whole thing. You can so just you have, have to the index or trail by, I don't know, 10 blocks or 100 blocks or something? You could do that, but then people are relying on it to know who owns what, and then they want to do a trade or they oh. want to do something and they, so yeah, it's that, it's that kind of sure. uh, tension. At and least of course, it's not, you, I imagine people who are into inscriptions maybe have a little bit of awareness about ordinals and it seems like ordinals is an even stickier problem because if there's a reorg, the transaction of, because it's like sat as the index, the sat is, is the index, the sat in that, in a given UTXO is the index. If you get it off, like, oh, you maybe sent your uh, NFTs to some, you know, I don't know, Coinbase or something. But can you recover that? Or in other words, if you, like if the, if the, if the reorg does that, doesn't the reorg undo your transaction of sending it or whatever? Uh, I, or I have no idea how Bitcoin works. I don't know exactly. I guess if, the, if you have transactions that are, let, let's say you have, no, because you probably have like a nonce or something on the uh, UTXO, right? Like the UTXO has to be spent. I wonder, could you have two transactions and somehow only one of them goes through and it causes, because the Ord wallet and all these other wallets are like sh shuffling around the UTXOs to only send specific sats because they're all together in the wallet. So I wonder if you could accidentally, I mean, definitely you can. And I know that there was some kind of reorg or and maybe not a reorg, but there was some kind of problem with their indexing that caused everything to be off by a certain number. So it, it essentially is like a crisis of provenance in the thing if the if the indexer right. has historically been wrong so that seems even worse because here the worst thing is just i don't know you need to check that the transaction that the inscription the e has actually been sent uh and no longer belongs to somebody if they ever try and execute the same transaction but there every transaction that the person sends is potentially shuffling the location of the ordinals and the inscriptions in their wallets anyway sc scarier right. well even definitely scarier. The, the ordinals <laughs> thing is you know, I didn't do, and I don't know how I would have done, because it seems really complicated, the actual order. I think, you, you know, UTXOs, this thing in Bitcoin, like, it's funny, the second you said, I assume people in the inscriptions understand Bitcoin. It's like, no one understands, I don't understand it, but like, UTXOs are basically a thing that helps with this. I think you could still order all this stuff without UTXOs. It would be harder, is my understanding, basically, well, but like, to, to, I didn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you could, you could, you could do something like that on Ethereum. You could do, and maybe even people are trying this with like the BRC20 inscription. Uh, forks. Uh, I, I've seen these in the in the marketplace. I don't know if they're actually trading as fungibles. Yeah, I, I think, well, so that's one. So I'm just saying that like, you know, looking at Bitcoin, it seems very hard to actually put the way in order and also unnecessary. I don't even see why it's necessary on Bitcoin. I think that it's cool that you can have the pizza sat with the picture on it. Like that's dope to me. I like that. But I don't think that's a necessary, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think, I think you could do inscriptions on Bitcoin without ordinals. Like you could invent another, I mean, it's all just like, for sure, for sure. you know, but, but yeah, anyway, the, the uh, um, yeah, in our case, the way to think about it is, you know, there's always a truth, right? And that truth though is probabilistic. So there's always like, who owns this inscription, but just what's the probability? And, and, and um, no one can answer that exactly. But if there's one, one block confirmation, then the probability is, you know, I don't know, 80%, 90 I don't know, whatever it is. And so because no indexer can really express that precisely and no user could ever understand it, you have this, you know, more nuanced and more tricky like deletion thing. But, Got it. you know, 
functionally speaking, it means that to your point, it's not that the indexer should trail, it's that user should trail. So, you know, we do this, we warn about this on the website where it's like, if you buy something, you should wait five blocks before you sell it because maybe the thing that said you bought it actually got reorged and changed. So just don't go so fast, basically. And this is what Coinbase or whatever, these is what real people do. When you send them ETH, they wait, Coinbase waits 14 blocks before it gives you credit in the account. But yeah, that's, that makes it tricky. Right, right. It's interesting what you say about people then wanting to do subsequent trades. So you can't, you can't just trade or you need, you, the UI just needs to represent it in a way that's safe. So I, we're kind of touching on the subject that I wanted to talk about, which is I, I, from Ordinals, I, because they have an, or is a, a wallet that's a fork of uh, the Bitcoin node software that has additional functionality for doing the exact same kind of indexing that you're talking about with the inscriptions but for their system, which is, you know, quite different because they don't have the same notion of transactions and accounts as Ethereum. So they're finding new ways to achieve that in the Bitcoin land. But what I learned from Ordinal studying it, whatever it was, whenever it launched a year or six months ago, is that there's this alternate design philosophy inside of Bitcoin, which I feel Ethscriptions is really evocative of, which is that you can put data onto the chain in different ways, maybe more limited ways in the context of Bitcoin or cheaper ways in the context of inscriptions where there's no contract, but instead you're just packing data into an affordance for holding data in Ethereum. And then you're indexing it. You're looking at the blockchain in a new way and saying, if we look at it according to this new protocol, we can suss out something that's some, some information that's hidden here that wouldn't be perceived of if we were, if you know just regular etherscan doesn't know about this protocol but we invent the protocol the social convention and then we build software to make it easy to interact with it that way we don't need to add features to the blockchain or new ERCs or new IP standards or any kind of new software aside from just a new way of looking at the blockchain do you think about this at all that it's like a, a very alternate kind of design philosophy to traditional smart contract engineering on, on Ethereum and, and much more similar to Bitcoin yeah, I think I do think about this maybe every second of every day of my life. Yeah, no, this is exactly what I what I think about every second of my life. You know, yes, I think um, everything you say is, you know, exactly accurate, like that I would say. And I think the only thing I would say is, A, uh, the idea of positioning this that we're talking about now as an alternative or different, I think is very interesting because talk to a normal person about NFTs and see what they say, right? <laughs> if they don't say, oh, yes, the standard thing and... Uh, Inscriptions is the weird thing. They say, what are you talking about? Get away from me. This doesn't mean anything. Right-click save. You're insane. So like, that's the status quo, right? NFT people are absolutely right. insane, right? I love NFTs. I've done a million NFTs. I've owned a million NFTs, spent a lot of money, lost some money. You're insane, right? So there's no status quo of great, except, you know, it's not like counterculture thing. It's like both of these things are incredibly counterculture, okay? Uh, yes, NFTs have greater adoption within the world of like one millionth one percent uh and the world is hated by many normal people or whatever and so that's that's real but there's no uh objective or even close to objective way you could say that one is like the normal way and one's the uh a weird way in fact i would say um the construct of a smart contract is weird right that was the weird one super weird now the way it was sold to us was it's weird but it's actually sick right it's actually like amazing and weird okay uh, and it turned out to be correct, but it was also expensive. So I think the, you know, to me, uh, the simpler thing, the more natural thing is to say, hey, people are doing things out there and that's real, right? Let's look at what the people are doing. Why do we have to copy what people are doing into another place that's super expensive and look at that? Why don't we just look directly at what the people are doing? So in some sense, right, this is a far simpler 
way of looking at the world because it's just, you know, it includes the same thing that the smart contract view includes minus a thing. So it's like you have less things out there. So it is simpler. So, you know, this is, of course, somewhat of a troll perspective because, of course, small contracts are the orthodoxy here and we're up against that or whatever. But, um, yeah, I think it's an alternate way of looking at the world. And I would challenge anyone uh, who thinks that smart contracts are just like the, the capital TH normal way uh, when, in fact, they are uh, a competing worldview. And, you know, people should try different worldviews out and see what works best for them. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I think Ecryptions is very, very cool. Despite many in the mainstream NFT world dismissing Ecryptions, I presume, uh, on the grounds of it not being ERC-721 or, or even 1155, one of the more common smart contract standards. Instead, it's really exploring a new territory and saying, we believe in Ethereum as a substrate, but maybe we don't believe in some of the presumptions of the standards. So I think that's very, very cool, regardless of whether or not you like Eatscriptions or collect Eatscriptions. I just think it's very positive to explore these other ways of even conceiving of what it is we're doing when we're working with blockchains, making art on blockchains, making infrastructure. That That's very cool. Yeah, and, and look, the other thing I would just say here is to anyone who's, you know, who doubts Eatscriptions or thinks it's not, like when I first heard about ordinals, I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. And if you had told me about Ecryptions, I would have said the same thing. It is, as any Ethereum maxi, like, I was in that mindset, okay? I was completely dismissing this stuff. You know, I thought, uh, you know, hey, like, yeah, I thought indexers are centralized, like, all this stuff, you need smart contracts. So, yeah, so I think open your your mind to this because uh, it it is a... um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I was there, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, um, anyway, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. Good. Yeah. Open your minds. So, so, so uh, yeah, open your mind, open your, open your minds to inscriptions. So, and more actually, I mean, really the, the, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but the, the truth is open your minds to thinking about using the blockchain in different ways. And this is a way that's actually been used many times by people and doesn't have in some ways as many requirements as the standards do. So the, the major advantage that you mentioned a couple times is the price. It's much cheaper to send a little bit of data along with your transaction and then let the indexer off the blockchain figure out who, which NFT belongs to who and what are valid transactions and then show it in a UI versus interacting with a contract, which is quite expensive. And it's also like a big thing uh, that the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine is built around is quantifying the cost of interacting with a smart contract so that more complicated transactions that take more computation and store more data cost more. In this way, you're kind of avoiding the question altogether by just one time writing the images to the blockchain and then using an off-chain indexer to figure out the trail of provenance afterwards. So it's, it's, it is very efficient and very cost-effective in that way. And it has a different relationship with the off-chain indexing, which, by the way, we're all using all the time when we interact with regular old ERC-721s on Ethereum, like OpenSea and all these other tools, Etherscan, et cetera, that, that surface the information. Um, my, question, my question is, how do you think about the different affordances between Eatscriptions and existing NFT stuff? What do you think is cool? Is, is the main thing the financial aspect, like that it's just cheaper to execute the transaction? Or are there other things that you find exciting too? Right, so I think it's good. So just one thing I was saying, and I say it in the same way, and it's tough to actually get your language around what this is. But one thing you say, one thing I say too, is like, you do a thing, okay, you do a, you do something according to the inscriptions protocol and put the data there, and then you allow an off-chain indexer to tell you what the what happened or something like this. And so what I really just want to emphasize is the off-chain indexer is not like telling you, I mean, it's literally telling you, like, I mean, that's like saying your computer monitor is telling you. Yes, the off-chain indexer is a tool that is... T- 
the protocol exists independent of all of this. And so uh, similarly, the exact same thing is true of NFTs. Like, I don't know of anyone out there who's ever actually gone up to a smart contract and asked the smart contract what their balance was of an NFT. I don't think anyone's ever done that because you cannot talk to a smart contract. You type into your keyboard, okay? Hopefully your keyboard doesn't break. You talk to maybe uh, an Ethereum node software thing, Geth or whatever. Hopefully that works accurately. You can go to Etherscan. Hopefully that works. You go to OpenSea. Hopefully that works. All of these tools could break. And if a tool shows incorrect information, you don't go around and say, wait a minute, Etherscan says the truth and Etherscan says I own it, so I must own it. No, you say Etherscan's broken. Let's fix Etherscan. You know what I mean? And so the same exact thing is true in Ecryption. So from an epistemic standpoint, there is literally zero difference, right? Literally zero difference. You are using tools to understand what is going on in the blockchain in either case. Now, in Ecryption's case, we're early, right? And so just like in the early days of anything, it's not so easy. But from an epistemic standpoint, from a philosophical standpoint, it's the same. And the reason for that is smart contracts have no information in them. They do, it, smart contracts don't exist. It is a construct that plays out through your interfacing with you know, these, these tools. But if you are watching someone use Ethereum through their, these tools, there is no way for you to know whether they're using inscriptions or the smart contract version. It's impossible, right? Because smart contracts don't have any unique... Anyway, so this is my thing. The other big advantage, I would say, is that not having to create a smart contract is liberating. You don't have to decide mm -hmm. what you're going to do before you do Like, okay, I want to do art. Okay, first I have to deploy a smart contract. What am I going to call that? Uh, what am I going to... Is this going to be a collection or what? And so, you know, that's annoying. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone really likes do you have a way for people to, to... So each transaction is always one NFT, one inscription, I should say? Right. So this is a challenge, broadly speaking, because you might want to have, you know, a hundred of them minted in one transaction. And you know, I can't say for sure that won't happen ever with the protocol, whatever. But yes, the whole point right now is it's one transaction ID, one transaction hash prescription, so one prescription. And so if you want to create a collection, uh, you either have to do it manually or give your private key to a JavaScript thing you write, which I've done this before. I could expose some of this code and you know, be careful. But you can also automate this process. Um, but yes, there is no... Um, there's no way right now to uh, do the NFT thing of mint 500 in one transaction. And, you know, I think that's kind of, uh, uh, that's kind of cool, but it's also a limitation depending on how you look at it. Right. But, but of course, the protocol, as you kind of hint at, could evolve to allow, for example, one transaction and somehow in the data you mention how many you are minting and then the indexer could allow you to transfer, let's say you mint 100 of them in the initial transaction, then you can send 100 times a transaction with that transaction hash and the indexer will just follow them around the blockchain. It's conceivable that it could be integrated into it. it there's nothing deeply philosophically incompatible about it. Cor correct. Well, yeah. And, and, and we will do this, but it's just more so that I think the most likely outcome will be not that multiple inscriptions are allowed for a single transaction, but rather multiple logical things happen from one inscription. So I like the idea of the inscription just being kind of like you know, the richness thing on top of the transaction and the richness thing can be an image or the richness thing can be a hundred BRC20 type tokens or the richest thing can be a hundred NFTs. Uh, it can be a lot of stuff, but just like, um, I like that one-to-one -one correspondence of like transaction, like, you know, hey, business, all business. And then the same hash corresponds also to this rich world. Anyway, this is like kind of head in the clouds. But yes, there will be a way to do this for sure. It's just like the exact way to do it. Uh, we got to be careful with, but, but yeah, it's... Uh, 
for now, so it's, I'm, yeah. think, I'm just thinking through for a little bit of future speculation, of course, no, no commitment to anything here, but let's just say there were a BRC 20 style, essentially what, what a BRC 20 is, I guess, for people worth who, who are caring about it. Maybe, maybe you can explain in more detail, but again, without creating a contract, you create an issuance event and then an indexer is able to interpret subsequent transactions and determine if they were valid or not in order to track something like a token, a representation of a token without having a smart contract. And that's why it can be achieved on, on Bitcoin as well. So something similar could be done with eScriptions. I guess it would give you huge gas savings and also probably significantly reduce the surface for uh, security problems, especially for something as simple as like a meme, meme token, where if it's a meme coin, there's no, there isn't substantial logic in the contract. It's not like a stable coin or something complicated. It's really just tracking provenance of some fungible token around uh, Ethereum. So you'd get probably a better risk profile with something like that and way cheaper transactions, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I um, you know, again, when I first saw people do the fungible tokens on eScriptions, I thought it was stupid, right? This is like the guaranteed way for something to be cool. When I think it's, I think it's dumb because I thought, well, this makes sense on Bitcoin. Maybe it's still pretty dumb there. But here we have the smart contracts in the ERC-20s. But then I started to think and you know, realize, hey, maybe there's something really important going on here with tokens and even beyond it. So yeah, everything you said. When I think of tokens, though, I think, okay, what actually is happening here? It's less about tokens specifically, although tokens are leading the way, and more about just that, this idea of like what you would call a higher level protocol, which is to say uh, a protocol that uses, that assumes inscriptions are real, which, you know, already that's a step, right? Mm-hmm. You have to like inscriptions. But assuming inscriptions are real, it defines higher level concepts, and in particular, higher level states in terms of inscriptions primitives. So, in the inscriptions, there's a very small amount of state. There's like what's valid because of the dupes rule, uh, and there's who owns what. That's the state. These people, right, the people into this, want to, deter- want to add a new state like balances of tokens. Like that does not exist within the inscriptions protocol, but can we figure out a way to represent it using uh, inscription primitives? Like if you transfer, if you, you know, announce your intention to mint, you know, that can be a, a form of digital artifact that's not actually a, an image or whatever. It's like an announcement. You announce this, you know, someone sees this, they can, they can know. So that I think is a really, really, really powerful idea, which is to say the big question of what higher level concepts and crucially what like higher level state can you represent here? Because fundamentally, if you're just, quote unquote just, if you're just doing cheaper NFTs, like that's amazing and you're serving a ton of people and that's brilliant and I love that. And if I could just do that, I'd be a huge success in this. But there's limited semantics there, okay? You really can't go that far you know, you can't do tokens with just that semantics. You need something else. Um, and tokens are just one part of it. So uh, I'm thinking very hard about this. Uh, and I'm interested in doing this in a way uh, that is not reinventing wheel every single time. Like you don't want to invent a protocol for tokens and then invent a protocol for domain names mm. and then invent a protocol for this. And you see this happening somewhat uh, in the Bitcoin world, kind of like, what is the thing that is happening right now? Like if I go to a website and I see my inscriptions, am I going to have this interpretation of the BRC20s on top or not, and there's maybe some inconsistency here. And I don't know that much about it, so if I'm wrong, like I'm probably wrong. But uh, my sense is there's some inconsistency, and that comes right now. Ethereum, uh, very cleverly, did not create this type of problem because they didn't say, hey, here's a way uh, to do tokens, and here's a way to do this. They said, here's one thing. It's called the smart contract. You could do anything with it, right? And that way, everyone running... Uh, an Ethereum thing new, uh, they only have to support one thing. They don't have to support tokens. Like if you are, you know, you have to, if you're spraying smart contracts, you care about this stuff. But at the protocol level, uh, no one has to worry what tokens exist. They just have to operate by the same uh, uh, rules. And so, you know, I think that is kind of the, 
bridge to cross where, um, you know, I'm not trying to say like, we're going to kill smart contracts for everything or whatever, but just like... No, no, smart smart contracts are coming to eat scriptures. Right. Well, that's, 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 that's like, there's got to be some way of, of talking about these protocols. It's not one by one. And the EVM provides one example of that. Maybe there are other ways of thinking about this that are more sure. correct for inscriptions, but there's got to be some, some mechanism of that. Because if you think about it, right, and now I'm going to say we are going to kill smart contracts. You don't need them. <laughs> you do not need them for anything. Okay, that is a, uh, a hard and fast truth that a lot of people don't like uh, to uh, admit or won't even admit, um, but it's true. You do not need a smart contract for anything. And so practically speaking, you do. On planet Earth, you do. But in the fantasy of an inscriber's murderous, you know, eyes, you know what I mean? But no, we're not going to murder smart contracts. We love smart contracts. But uh, yeah, so that's, so yes, I am interested in these, these things very much so. So basically to summarize, if you come up with a smart enough abstraction on top of these descriptions, like you did for the data URIs, but in this way, allowing a person to describe something additional about how an indexer should treat the asset that's being created in the mint transaction, the issuance transaction, then you might be able to capture a lot more use cases in the same way that smart contracts capture many, many use cases, instead of prescribing a specific uh, you know, format for a uh, fungible token, a format for domain names, as you say. So if you can, essentially you, you give developers, third-party developers, an affordance for writing standards on top of the descriptions, which is really just to say, you're giving developers a way to communicate with the indexer in a way that the indexer can anticipate, understand, and sort of enact when it does its indexing of the entire blockchain. Precisely. And of course, I don't, I would debate the exact phrasing of the way you're saying indexer, but I think you're making yourself understood. That's more important than my philosophy. But yes, developers, 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 developers. Remember this? See, Balmer has this famous thing. <laughs> I do, I do. Like, there needs to be... Sweaty, sweaty Steve. Yeah, developers, developers, developers. Like, and look, I'm not the most model citizen here because like, I'm putting out these new API docs and helping people with indexers of their own. I'm going to open source my thing. But like, uh, you know, the real cool thing from a developer standpoint is contributing to... Uh, extensions and making the protocol do more stuff, I think. And you've got to make that a good experience. Like if developers can't do it, if it has to be like, that, let's, let's be honest, right? Like the point of Solidity and EBM meant you didn't have to be some freaking genius to do it. Like <laughs> that's the whole point. If it weren't so expensive, it would be the sickest thing ever. It's like when I first saw it, I was like, wait a minute, this is like basically JavaScript. Like, is this a joke? This is blockchain development. It's like writing like a script. Like that's, amazing so it needs to be something like that if it's you have to be a genius you know like the opposite of this would be like kc with the ordinal thing like can anyone who could ever come up with that like you have to be like really smart mm -hmm. to do that like it can't be that that's bad i mean that's great that obviously kickstarted this entire revolution but like the expectation cannot be that innovation has to be that hard to do it's just it's you know normal people can't um you know can't do it so that that's kind of the idea i think is, is is have that solidity moment somehow i don't know i mean this is pretty young still but have that moment where a normal person non-genius can look at it and say okay cool it's like writing a javascript thing totally and if you can make it i mean because you're already working in kind of web standards uh you don't need to make something new necessarily you just need to come up with a standard way of describing things is it you working on this solo or are there other people who are now helping you develop Got some other people. My main collaborator is a gentleman named Michael Hirsch. Maybe he's here. No, he's not here. I've been looking at my phone. Uh, Y'all should follow him at 0xHirsch. I think H-I-R-S-C-H, but he's done an incredible job uh, with everything. And, um, you know, I would also be remiss to not say, um, looking at this chat, I'm just going to give some, some shout-outs. We got Max, who's been huge. Okay. Uh, Tom might not be in here. 
Bread has been instrumental in making me uh, even more extreme on many topics. Uh, Adam in the game on Emblem Vault. So yeah, there's just, it's a community effort, and I'm leaving off like a zillion people's uh, uh, names, but um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's cool. Very cool. Uh, we have about uh, 10, 15 minutes left. Uh, I saw a bunch of people were retweeting the room. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to share out the space. Uh, and I should also let you know that uh, I do this every Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. So please come through for interesting interviews like this. So uh, we talked about how the inscriptions work themselves. I'm curious, how does the market work? Is it a smart contract or is it also in this inscription ethos? Yes. So this, so it's a smart contract and you know, someday protocol to do it with these. Right now, when you're changing hands with the money, money's changing hands, a smart contract is really good because it's hard to just, what's the, it's hard to do the atomicity thing, atomicity thing where you buy and you lose the NFT, but you gain the money in the same transaction. So smart contracts are good at this. Unfortunately, uh, it's actually not so easy to do. Like writing a, a marketplace contract, you know, CryptoPunks market was the, um, the original one of these things. It was a long time ago and it had its own exploit, but like, it's pretty simple conceptually. Inscription is a lot harder because smart contracts can't know the state of inscriptions. And uh, that's because their inscriptions aren't stored in smart contract state. That's the whole point. And so you have to take some additional uh, precautions about how to uh, do it. And in particular, how do you have a smart contract uh, transfer an inscription? And the core issue that... Yeah. How, how are you able to get it? As, how, how are you able to list an inscription if the smart contract isn't able within the, tr- the listing transaction to verify whether you even own it in the first place. Correct. That is exactly the problem. So how do you do it? <laughs> right. That's a good question. So, you know, the... <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> right. No, yeah, please help me. No, I, I think I, we figured it out now, but we had a big problem with the first contract. Okay. But the concept is basically this. A smart contract has the power under the protocol now to transfer an inscription. Okay. The question is, is doing that a good idea or not? And so what we thought when we were going into this is like we can figure out a way to give smart contracts enough information and let them use that information to decide whether to transfer an inscription. So for example, if you deposit an inscription and then you withdraw it, you ask to withdraw it because that's how it works. It's an escrow smart contract. That's just how it works. You have to deposit something to sell it. If you deposit it and then withdraw it, the smart contract has to know, am I allowed to send it to you? Or are rather you a scammer who uh, deposited it after the real person deposited it, but you deposited the same ID and I can't tell them apart. And now you're going to withdraw and I'm going to send you the real one. If that's confusing, like it is a confusing situation. But or, or even you sent, you sent us an ID that's never been created or you sent us an ID that didn't belong to you in the first place because it, it, for people who aren't aware, the smart contract is not aware of dis, the distant past history of the blockchain. It only knows kind of some things that have been stored on the blockchain. And these uh, inscriptions are not stored in a way that it can access because it doesn't know the contents of all the transaction data of every transaction ever. It only knows things like data that's stored inside of itself and other smart contracts it can access. So how, how do you how do you handle the deposit transaction even? Right. So the first idea was let's give the smart contract more information. But it turns out you really can't do this trustlessly. The only way you could do this is I deposit, it's locked, and then I find a third party that's trusted who the smart contracts trust and I trust, and that third party gives me a signature. I show the signature to the smart contract. The smart contract says, okay, I actually own this now because the signature told me you deposited it and it's real. Now you can withdraw it or sell it. So that's one approach. It's the approach that works today. Uh, not the ideal approach in many ways because it is trustful. Uh, if the third party goes away, you lose your uh, inscription. At the same time, people trust, pe- you know, you have to trust people sometimes. So I don't think it's that bad, uh, but it, it's, it's, it's not an ideal thing for the um, 
uh, for the only solution. You could maybe do uh, like a Merkle proof on chain. Uh, you still trusted, but at least you wouldn't have to do the second transaction saying it's okay. Right. I think I think there's something you could, um, but then it's like, how do you, you have to set the route like after the, the indexer, last transfer. In, yeah. Like, yeah, you can only transfer up to some number of blocks and the index. You're, so you're indexing off chain and then you're constructing something. You put a small bit of information on chain and then anytime anyone wants to transact to deposit uh, the smart contract marketplace would check is this uh, included in in you know at the state that was most recently written? It would get tricky though, and you'd only be able to list things that were you know the state based on that block. Maybe it doesn't work actually. Yeah, it's it's tricky, and and we you know ran into some real problems with this, and it's like really hard. So we invented a new way. I'm sure this was Michael's idea. Certainly on a call with me, we talked about. It. I think he came up with this a new way that basically says, hey, paradigm shift here. Instead of trying to figure out how we can get information into smart contracts, which is impossible to do, basically, trustlessly, let's figure out how we can have smart contracts do what they want to do with less information and instead rely on the indexer. It's not actually relying on the indexer. It's how we talk about rely on the protocol, the indexer, to do the necessary validation. So, for example... If I, do, do, do the validation off-chain, essentially. Correct, correct. Now, it's still on-chain, but yes. Okay, so it's, but here's the example. So you deposit something. You, you, you deposit ID4, and that's valid. So now the contract owns ID4, doesn't know it. I deposit ID4. Now the contract goes, I deposited it. Now, ID4 is in there, but from the contract standpoint, you and I are equivalent, right? It doesn't know who is the actual depositor, so I go to withdraw ID4. The smart contract gives it to me, and you've just lost your... Uh, your inscription. So the question is, who is the depositor is the question, the escrow scenario, because the depositor has extra power over a random person, right? Like the person who actually deposited has extra power. And so we give smart contracts this tool, which we're releasing next week, which is basically a way for smart contracts to say, let Tom transfer this to Tom if, and only if Tom was the one who transferred it to me. Okay. So when I go to deposit, you, we both deposit ID4. Mine's fake and yours is real. Okay, now I say withdraw and the smart contract emits an event that says, send ID4 to Tom if he was the previous owner. And then you withdraw and it says, you know, send, uh, uh, it's Nick, right? Okay, sorry, I see the ends. Nick goes, Nick. So send ID4 to Nick if he was the one who was the previous owner. And so both of those, uh, Events are perfectly valid they, events. Both, both transactions happen, but it's then the indexer that says, oh, well, this one was fake. Forget that one. I'm not including that in the front end. Correct. I'm not going to show this on the eScriptions.com because it was never a valid transaction. So the transaction can still go through on the blockchain. If you're just looking at Etherscan, you wouldn't know, but you need the additional indexer off-chain to just check and say, tell you for sure which one is, is right. Basically, and this is kind of the L2 gesture of doing as much computation as possible off-chain and then just having what the parts that you need to be stored on chain stored on chain. Right. And, and just to be clear, like the same thing happens even today. Like if you go to transfer something that you don't own, the Ethereum level transaction will succeed, but it won't you know, show up. This is a more sophisticated version of that, uh, but it is not, you know, it's, and likewise, if you create an inscription that is, um, you know, uh, a duplicate, like anything that is like stateful in your actions are going to be potentially invalid and yet succeed on the, on the initial transaction uh, uh, level. And yet, you know, and so this, this kind of raises another broad question about the protocol, which is how do I know what just happened, right? Like uh, in Ethereum, you know, if you've ever programmed Ethereum, right, with like Web3 or Ether such AS, there's this concept of waiting, 
where you do a transaction and you wait. And then you see, ah, here's my receipt. And my receipt has the logs and all this kind of stuff in it. And so right now, uh, we don't have that exactly, a protocol for that exactly. Like if you do a transaction, you want to see if it's exceeded, there's no protocol for getting a receipt. You kind of have to like refresh the page uh, and see. But um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the um, the thing here. And so, so, um, so, so basically the for the marketplace. solve the problem. Yeah, so, so the marketplace. So anybody can list whatever they want. And I guess you, you can set a price when you interact with a smart contract to, to do a listing. And it's just that eatscriptions.com and any trustworthy eatscriptions website would not surface the listings that are not accurate. And so people wouldn't get uh, scammed by them and send ETH to the wrong, uh, you know, to, to, to purchase something that's not even a real eatscription. How does Emblem Vault come into the picture? So Emblem Vault, uh, and first of all, I don't know a ton about the details and mechanics, but as I understand it, basically Emblem Vault is a way of taking your eatscription and sort of wrapping it in and converting it into uh, an NFT on Ethereum that is a representation of the private key of an account who owns the inscription. So if someone buys the NFT, then they have the ability to get that private key and um, have the account that owns the inscription. And if you uh, sell the NFT, you're, you're, you're sort of selling uh, that. And so you have to, you know, it's obviously trustful with respect to the vault, but, you know, the vault's trustworthy. They've done a million of these things and they've been, you know, a great partner to the, uh, to the protocol, but that's kind of how it works. You're sort of um, selling a private key uh, in the form of an NFT, basically. Mm-hmm. And just, I guess people should know, there, there is a fair amount of custody involved there. It's, it seems to, to no, I don't think anyone has, has been scammed by Emblem Vault, but there is a fair amount of trust in Emblem Vault. Uh, so it's not, not quite as on-chain as Ethscriptions, the, the native issuance part or transferring part. But at the same time, there is no trustless way <laughs> as of yeah, today. So right. like, that's what I'm, we tried round one, we didn't do it. Next week, we're going to do it. Um, but yeah, it's a... Um, it's a tough problem. Yeah, we're gonna, we got to get it trust this way. But if you want to trade it now, you need to uh, use trust. And, you know, there are also benefits too. Yeah, sure. And it's cool. If they're NFTs on, if you want it to be on OpenSea and so forth. Exactly. So uh, good to have the option to do multiple things. Very cool. So, and, and in the future, do you think that the smart contract marketplace would be replaced by something Eatscription's native? Because you do need something to... I, I mean, you could pass the hash of the, uh, you know, the, the token ID... Uh, along with some ETH to someone and say that is a purchase and they could in some reciprocal way have announced the listing in an ETHscription's native kind of way. But, you know, it's just, it's up to the indexer and following the protocol rules to enforce. Do you think that's a a likely future? Right, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think the answer is yes. Obviously, like I would never say like, no, we're going to, of course, we're going to do this. I think that the question is like, you know, I don't want to further, I want to do as limited increasing as possible of the, you know, semantics of the inscription protocol, like, it's funny, when I launched, I actually discarded the idea to do smart contract transfers, which I had already and postponed it. And then even then, it was a bad idea. Like, anything you do with this stuff is just like, who knows? It's like, great complications. So want to keep it minimal, I would like to bundle this. Yeah, just like, take that higher level. Like, this is a higher level question. Like, maybe instead of paying with, you know, with paying with ETH, you're paying with like a BRC20 type coin. Like, how would that work? Or, but at some point, ETH needs to get into the equation. A real value needs to get into the equation somehow. That's something to um, uh, uh, to solve. But yeah, I think well, this or, would be or an the, um, e- Eatscription's native. Uh, I mean, what do you call them? <laughs> they can't be ERC twenties. That's already taken. But BRC twenties on Eatscriptions right. could be a native token for Eatscriptions itself, and it would be relevant to everybody who who plays with it. But it would be incompatible with Uniswap, for example. Well, maybe Uniswap launches on, but yeah, I mean, you can really get your, uh, you know, it's not that I think about this stuff a lot, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if there were a way to have 
and, you know, native token like SEC, whatever. But I suppose you had some kind of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, ETH type. I don't know how it works with like the bridging of ETH or whatever, but like, yeah, you know, in, in you know, six months, everyone will probably be bridging ETH into uh, inscriptions and, um, you know, interacting with inscription uh, smart contracts and buying, you know, things. And it's all going to be in this world. So yeah, that, that I think you can look forward uh, to. But, but yeah, I think there's just no reason. The reason why I say all this stuff is there's no reason that you can't do it. Right. You know, and it's cheaper. It and, will be um, cheaper. It will be cheaper. Do you imagine that an yeah, inscription specific wallet would be necessary or like traditional ETH wallets allow you to do everything and it can just be like a, a website that gives you the additional information? Yeah, I mean, I like MetaMask. Like everyone hates on MetaMask. I like MetaMask. I think ultimately, like what does MetaMask do for me even with Ethereum? Like I don't really use it to see like, yeah. you know, just what NFTs I have. I use it to do transactions and you can transfer things like tokens, which wouldn't be yeah. I think it has to be a good website and, you know, it has to be like, uh, you know, it just has to be much more alive basically because MetaMask or any of these other things, right? Like you get the, you know, you get the liveness on regular Ethereum by transaction validation and MetaMask says, even on regular Ethereum, it's kind of ridiculous. They'll say like, uh, this is going to cost $20 million. Just just tell me it's going to fail. Okay. (laughs) Why are you telling me this? But like, yeah, you have this benefit of the protocol itself you know, having this liveness thing where the transaction will fail. And so you need to be more alive uh, in the world of uh, of inscriptions. But, you know, who knows? Down the road, you have, you know, indexer nodes who are piping the thing. I mean, you actually don't have to be that alive. You just have to stop people from doing things when you're behind, you know? And so it's like kind of that combination. Which is actually um, not so hard. I mean, even on the site already, you have like how many blocks behind the indexer is, if any. So you just, you you know, make use of that. Lock them out. Exactly. There's, uh, we talked a little bit about like different kinds of ways the protocol might change, improve, add features in an intelligent way that's really extensible and, and enables a whole community to flourish. What are ESIPs? And maybe can we talk about the first two that have already happened? Sure. So ESIPs, inscriptions, improvement proposals. When you start a protocol, one of the fun things you get to do is start this whole thing, right? It's like you get to copy paste the EIPs and there are other EIPs stuff like Ethereum improvement proposals. So, yeah fun to kind of copy paste that. But yeah, you want to create a formal way of talking about what you're going to do because, you know, there's decent amount of specificity here and, you know, it's good to kind of lay it out. So there have been two proposed, one final, one draft. The first was, you know, probably a mistake realistically in terms of like the uh, (laughs) thing we were trying to accomplish. It was the smart contract transfers. I mean, it's a perfectly uh, secure and good thing to have and something we needed to have and I'm glad we have it. Like we need it eventually. But it's the first thing to do Maybe we had to learn from it, but like... Can you just explain uh, what, it, what it is for, for people uh, who aren't, don't get it? It was just a very basic contract event. That contract would mid an event that would have a to transfer description and have a recipient and ID. And if the contract owns it, it would transfer it to the recipient, the ID in question here. And that is, you know... So it would basically enable smart contracts to emit an event that the indexer would pay attention to. So now suddenly smart contracts can also send uh, inscriptions, not just receive them. Correct. And the way it was done was under a false notion of what simplicity means. Because I was thinking, we were thinking like, wow, this is super simple. Of course, let's just do the simplest thing first and go. And this is the simplest thing. And we go. And in some ways it is, but it's not actually the simplest thing because to use it correctly is too hard, basically. You know, uh, to use it correctly, you need to have a very, very specific idea that includes a third party, third trusted third party. And, you know, it's just a dangerous, it's a dangerous tool. Uh, if you use it from the perspective of someone who is using smart contracts before inscription. So like, um, I would basically say, unless you really know what you're doing, you probably shouldn't be using that. 
uh, function. It still should exist. It's, it's absolutely necessary for some reason. Like if you, um, at the worst case scenario, if you have a contract and things are locked in it and you need to get them out, then this is like, you know, you need this uh, uh, event. But I, I, I foolishly thought that this was a simple thing uh, when in fact it looked simple, but actually using it was so complicated. Where, that, where's the uh, trust? You know, and that brings us to ESIP2. Where was the trust? The trust? Who are you trusting in the smart contract transfers? This was just the idea that like you needed a trusted third party to tell you uh, as a smart contract, what do I own and who deposited it? That was kind of what we were talking about a moment ago. This was the, the thing that... Because uh, it, it opens know, and, it, and then it opens the potential for the smart contract to rug you more, more easily because, it's, it, because the, the source of truth is the emission of these events, which is the purview of whoever wrote the smart contract and however they wrote it rather than like truly following the provenance of the of the thing in a more direct way. Yeah, it's just like it, it, it makes it hard for smart contracts to express their actual intent. In other words, uh, you know, without knowing who is the depositor in an escrow situation, you really can't use this event successfully. And so you need someone to tell you who the depositor is and see, that's trusted or whatever. So anyway. Okay, so the, tr- the, 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 tr- the trust is that the smart contract doesn't know the truth. So when it emits an event, it may be changing reality without realizing it because it doesn't have in context uh, without the help of somebody off chain propagating that to, to the smart contract. Okay, got it. Okay, so ESIP2? is fixing this. And that was the thing we talked about a moment ago where it's like, instead of saying transfer it to Tom, it says transfer it to Tom if Tom is the rightful depositor. It's like an if then. And so this is a more complicated ESIP. If you read this, uh, make longer. it all the way through, I would like to give you a award for this. I you know, really had to get into the details here because we learned some hard lessons, basically. This one seems more complicated, but it's actually a lot simpler because it actually lets you uh, express the expressive power uh, you know, is much greater and the expressive power saves you a ton of other things you're going to try to do to, to, to make it uh, happen. And as part of this, actually, there's a, a base contract in there that I linked in the thing, which basically lets you, if you want to create your own marketplace, you can inherit from this uh, base contract and that will handle this validation for you. Uh, at the same time, it still is pretty confusing. So if you want to do this, please, uh, my DMs are open and talk to me. But it's definitely, and also wait for you know me to launch this again. I think it's going to work this time. It's freaking better, okay? Like I'm, I, I, Let me be the guinea pig. But if it does work, you want to launch your own thing, please please let me know. Because I, I think we really try to make something extensible here. So in summary, the the two ESIPs so far have basically made it now possible or will shortly make it possible for people to write their own smart contracts that can handle custody of NFTs Second. and also offload the uh, like validation that they're legitimate transfers to the indexer uh, that you've created and that anybody else could replicate. Very cool. Correct. So, I mean, essentially it is... Uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, both these ESIPs was basically like, how do we build a marketplace fundamentally? You know, I want to add generic features and these are generic features and everything, but like, you know, just people need to be able to trade these natively for it to be a real protocol. And so that's kind of a, you know, another way to look at it basically. But yes, bringing smart contracts into the game and smart contracts, in other words, smart contracts bring a ton of power. As much as I hate them, I don't hate them, but as much as I hate them, kind of, they do a lot. And they are a huge advantage that we have over Bitcoin and so we got to flex that advantage, but do so in a safe way um, because we know what we're doing because we thought about it. And um, that's like, you know, not, it wasn't as easy to do as I, as I thought. And hopefully this, this nails it. 
We're good. We're good. Uh, so the last thing I really wanted to ask you about was uh, we talked a little bit in DMs about what you hate most about L2s and it's come up a little bit in this conversation, but there are elements of L2s that are similar to Eatscriptions, although you just tweeted Eatscriptions is definitely not an L2. So what what are you thinking about? What, what's your what's your mindset on all of this? Sure. So, and I have a lot, whew, you know how people like, <laughs> you know, take a deep, deep, deep breath. So sit down, everybody. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the thing about inscriptions and people say indexer this, indexer that, they're wrong. Sorry, but I, I will help. I, I was wrong too once. That's why I say that. But like, inscriptions are 100% decentralized. And what that means is there's no one special. No one is special. Okay. I'm not special. You're not special. Everyone has the same power to read and the same power to write. Okay. And that's because all the writing and reading happens on Ethereum, which is like a pretty good thing. It's not totally centralized, whatever, but just like it's pretty darn good. And everyone is equal. There's an equality there. L2s are different. L2s are trying to be really fast and really cheap. And the way they do that is they write to and read from things that aren't Ethereum. Supposedly, right, the idea is they also write to Ethereum. That's the roll-up thing. But fundamentally, that's, you know, that's important. That's great. But the fundamental action that is happening moment to moment on an L2 is writing to and reading from something that is not uh, uh, Ethereum. And then, you know, gets written in the roll-up and you can verify what's ever written to Ethereum is, is real or whatever. But that is not decentralized because that is not something where everyone is on even footing, not even close. In fact, there's someone called uh, the sequencer who is, you know, knows everything and has all the power basically. And that person is run by, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get into the giant corporation. Right? Like there is a powerful entity running L2. Now there's a powerful entity running Amazon Web Services as well. So why don't I hate AWS? I love AWS. And why do I hate L2s? I love L2s. I don't hate L2s. If you came here, what I don't like is people saying things are things they are not. I think misleading people and saying, hey, this is secured by the L1. It's just as safe. It's all good. Everything's good. Like that is not good because that is not true. It is not as secure as the L1. It is not decentralized. Maybe some miracle will happen in the future, uh, but it is not. And what people will say is like, oh, like actually, if the, in, if the sequencer ignores you, then you know, you could do this thing called forced inclusion. And so 24 hours later at greater cost, you can force it in with another bunch of million assumptions. It's like no one has any idea. It doesn't make sense. It's all fake. Now, what's real is L2s are dope. What's fake is the idea that L2s are uh, giving you these uh, decentralization or security or anything that you uh, uh, want. So my view is that everyone should use L2s. Everyone should use AWS. People just know what it is and not put their life savings uh, uh, on there. And so when it comes to inscriptions, my idea is basically, hey, we're not an L2. Uh, for one thing, we're not as good in some ways. We're not as fast, not as cheap in some ways, right? But we're also decentralized. And we stand for the idea that that matters, that people aren't going to be able to trick consumers uh, forever. And in fact, consumers are pretty smart. And that's why no one uses L2s, because they know it's a little bit weird. There's something up and they can't put their finger on it. But you all out there should be able to put your finger on it. And you should say, hey, L2s, tell the truth. That can be like a chant, basically. So that's kind of my position on uh, on L2s. Occupy L2. I like it. So, yes. so, so the idea is basically that there are, L2s are much more complicated and there are elements of centralization, like particularly building the blocks and what choosing what gets included or not included. Things could be censored by the people who are uh, putting the transactions into blocks for the L2 chains and communicating them to L1. There are trapdoors. There's ways that you can force the inclusion, but 
they're really not something that everybody's going to get up to. The point is that there's a bit of, from your perspective at least, uh, some centralization is being smuggled in under the brand of L2, which purports to be fully decentralized, but actually does introduce a lot of extra technology and players with their own motivations, Who, which by contrast, eScriptions is really just a protocol. It's really just saying, here's a way to look at what happens on the blockchain. We're not adding technology. We're just adding a way of looking at what's already happening. And so you don't need your own separate security model. And you don't need all the complexity of having assets in vaults on L1 that are then represented on L2s or uh, optimistic roll-ups whose fraud proofs are being disputed on L1 or the complication of having a delay period before you can be sure that some asset has traveled back from L2 to L1. Eatscriptions kind of avoids this by just being way simpler and way more directly relying on the security of L1. It, it really is just an L1 uh, protocol. It's not, it's, it's not something that's happening on a separate chain that gets rolled up. Precisely. And just to be clear, my view on the L2 is L2s have roll-ups, L2 has fraud proofs. L2 has various mechanisms that on a local level can look decentralized and good. But there are also other things, transaction inclusion, transaction censorship, the multi-key on the, you know, multi-key signature, multi-sig on the Bridge, whatever. My position is that if you look at the entire aggregate of all of the facts on the ground, the end result at a high level is total centralization. In other words, the ability for the people in charge to manipulate the details and get exactly the outcome they want. Maybe it's through the mechanism of ordering transactions differently. Maybe it's, a, but the idea is if you are sophisticated and you have all these details in your purview, you're going to get whatever outcome you want all of the time. If you, you know, if you're smart, basically. So, uh, you know, and I don't see this changing. So it's really, really sharp that like, I just want to say, I believe there are some individual elements that are uh, good for consumers, but they don't matter because the overall totality is something that can be very easily uh, uh, manipulated. And the reason I know this absolutely for sure is because if L2s are so good, why don't we just turn Ethereum into an L2, right? We did the merge, right? We upgraded the consensus mechanism, which doesn't actually exist. You can't actually upgrade a consensus mechanism. I have my own problems with the merge, but we changed the consensus mechanism to something that was 100 times more environmentally efficient. If L2s are so great, why don't we change Ethereum to be 100 times faster? And the reason is you can't, because there's a whole thing about decentralized consensus, which has a zillion academic papers, a zillion people spilled a bunch of ink, and they say, no, decentralized consensus, which is a miracle, by the way, that even works at all, that's pretty freaking special. You can't just will that into existence. And so the L2s come and say, well, you know, we're going to be like Amazon and you know, we're going to be like Amazon has transparency. I'm sure Amazon, you know, they could have a website where they publish all their server logs or they, you know, give you the ability to talk to a person. And, but, but no one does that with Amazon and thinks, wait a minute, I'm going to like win against Amazon here. They think Amazon's going to get the outcome they want all the time, but they might hear me out and their incentive is not to screw me over because there's competition. And so you, you're not at war with Amazon. I use Amazon every day, but you're never thinking I'm going to be able to use a tool within Amazon's system to beat Amazon. Like, you know how absurd that idea is, basically? So that's, that's kind of my thought. Uh, and I took a deep breath before that one. So that's kind of my impassioned pitch. <laughs> um, so some, some healthy skepticism of the L2 promise. It's, it's funny because when I really started paying attention to Ethereum uh, in late, uh, middle, late 2020, and then into 2021, everyone was complaining about Polygon. Polygon POS chain was a side chain that was advertising itself as a legitimate L2, but actually had a different security model. Uh, and it, it was far less decentralized was the argument that was being made. There are various ways, a multi-sig controlling the bridge, as well as the whole chain's validation being done by, uh, I think now it's like 100 uh, partner, like known partner entities around the world and nobody more than that. 
Uh, so really not the same decentralization or risk profile around the security of the chain. And yet somehow L2s have, at, at least maybe people are not familiar enough with the technology to be making kind of blanket statements about how much safer L2s are than sidechains or alternative L1s, uh, because it does seem like there are several additional uh, surfaces where there's risk that people are taking on. So having ETH on, a, on an L2 is not exactly like having ETH on an L1. I agree with you. It's interesting because we see before us like a, a forking path where it seems like either L1 becomes... Uh, kind of just something where L2s are rolling up to and it's not something that most regular people are interacting with directly or it becomes, it remains the the chain of record where people want to trade things like art objects where they can have some trust that the provenance is legitimate and that the art is never going to disappear, the transactions will never be erased. Uh, it seems like two very different paths and I think 2023 is shaping up to be an L2 kind of year. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if in the long term it swings back and people return to to focusing on L1. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a great point. And Brett actually put me on to this, this is the audience, which is, yeah, you, you, the L1 is not going to exist like it does now. It's too expensive. And also the powers that be are forcing it in this way. L2s use L1 block space very efficiently. If L2s get going, they're going to take over L1. Mm-hmm. And they're going to turn L1 into basically Amazon's log storage website. Okay, like Amazon stores all its logs. Like if you're a big company, you don't want to just get rid of the logs. It's good to be able to audit your own logs. And so you store your logs. So maybe you store it in a secure location. Amazon probably does that. That's what L1 will be. It'll be a log storage dumping ground uh, for corporate uh, L2 uh, centralized change. Now, let me ask you this question though. You mentioned Polygon, okay? And you mentioned the L2s. Now it's like, why does one have a better brand than the other? Okay, let's think about this. Like it's not all random right? Like life is not random. There are generally powerful people who are running the show, basically. Like it's, it's a, um, uh, uh, you know, when big things are happening, uh, it's not because of master plans necessarily of powerful people, but it is the interests of powerful people playing uh, out in front of our eyes in nuanced ways that the powerful people themselves didn't know, but who benefits, right? Proof of work, there were these people called miners and they were kind of on the outside and proof of stake as the sakers, the validators, right? They are on the inside. They are the super rich people who have a ton of ether and make more ether the higher the fees are. And so what world is amazing if you are a validator, but one where the L1 is just packed to the gills with an insane amount of dumb data from Amazon logs. Basically, let's fill that block space, generate a ton of fees, ETH goes up, validators make a lot of money, other people who have a ton of ETH, like Vitalik, make a ton of money, people who got the pre-mine, okay, don't get me started on that. So it's like, the people who use Ethereum to actually do cool stuff, right? Use Ether to uh, pay transaction fees and, 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 and create art and do cool things. Uh, the people who are uh, using ETH to make money, they don't care about that stuff. They just care about the fees being as high as possible. And there is a equilibrium here because the people getting the fees do an amazing job securing the network. They deserve the fees. But I don't believe that the fees should be won in a sort of centralized kind of thing where uh, we are paying money to, you know, basically secure uh, uh, the logs of, um, you know, L2s, which are sold as being, like, people should know what they're getting into, basically, is kind of my, my, my tirade here. So I think if people love L2s uh, and they're down to use them and have them take over the L1, uh, then it should not be, they should not be doing it because they are, are, are led to believe it's a, um, you know, it's a true, it's a true replacement. So, like, I'm, I'm very much like... Uh, uh, I think there's a real 
um, tension between you know the people who are trying to use ETH to build things and the people who are trying to collect fees. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a great ecosystem there that both of those people should win. And I think that the role of the L2 eating the L1 is kind of an interesting element in this um, you know this thing. If I'm getting conspiratorial, by the way, everything I just said is me kind of getting a little <laughs> crazy. Okay, I'm trying to you know provoke some ideas, but like you know. There's, there's forces at play. It's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, it is something, I mean, I'm starting to be more, I, I feel a strong need to be more familiar with the ins and outs of exactly how all the different types of roll-ups function and understanding. I, I think in future episodes, I'm going to try and bring on some people from Optimism and, and other places who are really deep in the stack of how these L2s work to understand what kinds of assumptions people are making when they're interacting with them. Because it's okay to make assumptions and, and take a risk and have trust in somebody, but it's just best to know that we're doing that uh, beforehand, not just trust the brand of a, a moniker like L2. You're right to point out that there are obviously economic interests. I think the proto dank sharding EIP 4844 upcoming is going to essentially make it cheap for rollups to put their law, AWS logs, as you say, like the, uh, the, the few transactions that they have to send in order to roll their chains up into L1 will be uh, less costly. Uh, consume less gas and less space and not be archived for as long if I understand the 4844 proposal well. So I think Vitalik, I think the, I think the Ethereum Foundation at least is interested in truly scaling Ethereum and, and yet they also seem to, I think people who come from the deepest parts of the protocol building do kind of not really understand why you would want to do trivial transactions on L1 over the long term and think that a lot of the a lot of the activity is going to move to L2. So it's definitely an interesting topic, but I like your skepticism. And I think you're not wrong to, I hear it coming from more and more corners of uh, crypto Twitter these days that people are starting to feel like there are corporate interests that uh, are really very powerful in the space and are potentially controlling the narrative of where uh, people are doing their transactions and creating assets and trading, et cetera. No, I appreciate it. Let me just walk back a little bit of my craziest things on that because I feel very strongly about my L2 position. And, um, you know, if anyone thinks that's crazy, they should know that I 100% believe it. When I'm talking about the powerful interests and the stakers and the pre-mine and validate, like that's a little bit more just like gestural. So just let me walk back some of my extreme stuff there. I, I do think I love Vitalik. That's why I criticize all the stuff. I love all the stuff. I love Ethereum. And uh, yeah, I think the, the um, there are a ton of benefits to uh, the rise of, uh, of L2s. The thing that makes me emotional uh, and maybe gets me ahead of myself is the idea of you know, it, uh, it's taking over. But yeah, look, I, I would love to listen to your show. And first of all, this has been amazing. Awesome, and thanks. I, and I actually do have a little more time because I just snuck into an Uber to go to where I have to go because I didn't think I could do that. But I did, like, I would love to hear because what I do is I try to talk to people and a lot of people say uh, what you say, what I used to say, which is like, ah, I think something, I, I got to look into it more. And I looked into it more. I still don't get it, right? I, but I, I'm, I'm, Kind of like my question is to you, just my challenge is like, I'm at the point where I'm saying I've looked into it enough and I don't think there's anything there. Now, I would love for you, because you strike me in this great conversation, a very intellectually honest person, like, yeah, maybe there, maybe we could check in or something. Like, I want to hear from you. Uh, at some point, you should say, I've looked into it because you're never going to be able to get the bottom of it 100%. You know, it's so like, what is the call? And I think I, I would love to listen to someone uh, on this show can really explain it, like really break down the details. Yeah, all right. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm open to that. I'm going to get I'm gonna get that person. I'm going to find the right person, maybe someone from OP Stack, maybe someone from Arbitrum or, or the ZK stuff that's going on at Polygon who can really explain to us what 
what kind of assumptions does a person make when they bridge tokens? What are all the different ways in which a uh, roll-up can be challenged? How realistic is it for an individual? Do you have to have, have lost a million dollars for it to be worth challenging? Or is it something where even a small transaction... And I, w- the one part that really I don't understand, two things really, the, the interaction between the sequencer, centralized sequencer and the roll-up and also how a roll-up would actually manage being like the, you know, the seven day waiting period for bridging tokens back is because there could be a fraud proof in that period of time. So what would happen if you unwound a chain like days into its history? I I don't really understand what the implications would be for the L2 itself. So there's a lot of interesting questions that I have for some, some experts in this field. So I'm going to make a point of getting some, some people like that on in, in August. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you anything about this. Is there anything about your life now, your work now, your passion that has anything to do with your experience at Genius? I know I, I, I was watching the, I remember back in the day, I watched the TechCrunch Disrupt where you guys were on stage acting a fool, making uh, making a great time of it. Uh, do you have any reflection on that period or has it informed what you're doing now? Is there anything you can say to this? Uh, yeah, don't wear sunglasses on stage <laughs> if you're indoors. Uh, that... <laughs> Doesn't look good. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, it's it's great to hear you say that because that's kind of like the reaction uh, that I thought people would have. But yeah, that video. If you want to see me see the stuff that ruined my life, basically, <laughs> not ruined my life, because a lot of problems for me. It was like acting the fool on stage, and I thought it's like what it's like tech crunch disrupt is not like some like super dignified. Like it's like kind of like whatever. But like shit anyway, show. yeah, yeah, it should be. A shit don't show. go on stage and act weird. Um, act normal. People like normal. Yeah, Genius was um, an amazing experience. You know, Genius for those who don't know it is a website and other stuff, but a website, genius.com, tells you the lyrics uh, of a song, any song, and tells you the meaning of the lyrics. You can click the lyrics to get the meaning. And this was like a, you know, just an amazing uh, experience of um, having an idea that I thought was cool and then <laughs> being able to build it into something. And then also it kind of having a lot of problems too. But you, you didn't start is most, as, the, as the CEO, right? No, I did. Oh, I you, did. you started as Okay, you were the founding CEO. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. CEO for, yeah, for 12 years, I guess. And, um, wow. you know, grew it... Yeah, it grew to being, you know, it was like 120 people at the end. So big enough to ruin your life, not big enough to like be like truly huge or whatever. But um, it was, uh, and it was great. Worked with some, you know, amazing people and the, you know, being able to be in culture uh, is incredible. But the thing that, you know, got me going the most was there was this incident where um, we had this uh, search results. So Amazon, uh, Google search was a huge source of traffic for us. And being number one on Google search means you get a ton of traffic. And lyrics are like the number one thing searched on Google, basically. Like Google really? should basically be called like lyric search box. Maybe not number one, wow. but it's big. Like Google I is like a lyric that. search machine. And, um, you know, huge. Like it's, uh, now maybe Google's gotten bigger, but it, whatever. It, 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 lyrics is huge. And so that's how you can become a really big website. And that's what we did. But Google, uh, again, giant corporation, very powerful. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether this is their grand plan or not. Their interests became and the world aligned with the idea that um, we want to have our own lyrics product. And because of that, uh, and, and we're going to have an amazing advantage because we've run the search engine. So we are going to have a lyrics box that has lyrics and it's going to go above everyone else in our search engine, right? Because we control the search engine. This is, you know, antitrust means that you can't use your monopoly in one area to kill everyone else, but this is what they wanted to do. So they did this. And it's like, okay, people were still clicking on us for a variety of reasons. Uh, one reason is we had the right lyrics, right? Mm. Lyrics, for those of you who don't know, uh, it's a pretty interesting thing. Lyrics don't exist. There is no thing that exists in the world, abstract or not, called lyrics. And the reason for that is that 
when people ask for lyrics, what they actually want is a transcription of a recording of a song because lyrics aren't written in advance typically or a lot of times. And even if they are written in advance, if the performance is different from the written lyrics, people want the transcription of the song. And different versions of songs and different transcriptions and transcriptions have all kinds of, uh, you know, subtle things like do you put little ad libs in there? Like if there's a, um, an intro that's a sample from a movie and you transcribe that. So there's no real thing called lyrics anymore, at least. So because of this, it's actually hard to get the lyrics. You have to transcribe them, you have to listen to the song. So we would do this, but then what would happen is Google would copy lyrics from our website and put it in the box above our website, okay? And so it's like, wow, not only are you doing this anti-competitive thing, you are also literally copying from us uh, to do it. Now, did, you, guys, you guys didn't scrape any other lyric sites when you started? We did, we did. And we responded to, you know, whatever takedown requests or whatever, but this was not a scraping of a lyric site. This was getting a new song the second it came out. You know what I mean? Like this was a hot news type situation. This was something where, you know... They're grabbing uh, it basically uh, like live from the site. Basically they cache it or whatever, but it's basically like as soon as it's on Genius, it's going to be in that knowledge graph box at the top of the search results. Correct. In other words, there's something called back catalog, which whatever, I don't care about the back catalog. It's like, if you want to scrape that, that's fine, basically, because it's irrelevant. The, The most important thing is being first on the number one song right now. And the thing is, you don't need to scrape the back catalog anyway, because that's easy to get, because it exists. Like, other people have it. Like, we were the only people who had the new songs, because we were the people who... Anyway, you, you get the idea. It's like a new, it, but you're, a new also, you're kind of incentivizing people with, like, points and stuff to do the work of staking out the new cultural objects, like, right away, right? Correct. But we would also, you know, talk to the artists and just do a bunch of stuff like this. A bunch of work. It was a machine that we built to do this. And Google, uh, though they could replicate that machine for back catalog, they cannot replicate that machine for new stuff. So they figured, okay, let's do something that we know is wrong, but we think we can get away with and, and copy and paste it. And um, there's like an interesting Wall Street Journal article. You can Google about this, how we caught them. And it was a whole dramatic thing where we put fingerprints into mm-hmm. the lyrics. So we had the lyrics and they would have straight apostrophes and curly apostrophes. And we alternated the straight and curly apostrophes uh, so that it spelled out red-handed in Morse code. So that was kind of like our <laughs> trick, basically, because it's like, oh, how on earth could this have gotten there unless you copied it from our website? And, you know, so this was like a really annoying A little bit uh, of an inscriptions move in a, in a way. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, exactly. The provenance of the, of the freaking text. Yeah, extra data, precisely. It's the exact, exact same thing you know, as Yelp, Yelp faced with them, right? And, and many co- companies. I actually have been thinking about it a lot, especially in the light of the LLM GPT stuff. It's like, it's, it's kind of fascinating that Google chose really the less ambitious idea of just like Sherlocking their most successful search results uh, with Knowledge Graph and, and really relying extremely heavily on Wikipedia and maybe like a structured data variant of Wikipedia, but really not fostering an ecosystem where new content is being made. They really made it very difficult for people to make a living, even running a business uh, that would generate the content that would be interesting search results in Google. Whereas like nowadays, and so the, the result is that the source of interesting text kind of like, it's not that there's, I'm sure there's abs- in absolute figures more interesting data on being generated online now than then. But it, they really, in the same way that Apple kind of creates a situation where the ecosystem can only support uh, kind of pathological business models, 
Uh, Google did a very similar thing to a lot of people in the search results space. And the result is that they made themselves irrelevant ultimately because uh, re-indexing the tokens that are out there and calling it an LLM is really just a much more compelling and new, exciting way that can do new things. And Google is stuck like just returning these dumb Wikipedia results, which, I mean, whenever they give Wikipedia, it's not worth the amount that they milk it for for search results, right? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And that's kind of the way it felt too. Like when I was starting, Eugene started in 2009, at that point, and my, my co-founder, Alon, worked in Google in 2008. Like in 2008, it was like, wow, like Google is like the number, is like the modern day Bell Labs. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like the best place you could ever be if you are interested in technology. And then it's like, okay, well, really they're like kind of axe murderers or whatever. And so it's like, you have to really feel that, you know, intense corporate, and you know, it's not, there's no they, it's just the process of corporate interest playing out. But anyway, we sued them. And why do we sue them? We sued them because I was like, we're not going to take it, basically. Um, and uh, everyone said, don't sue the big company. And I sued them. And, you know, it was a whole interesting thing. And, you know. How long did the lawsuit loss take? Loss. Well, so the way it happened, and these guys have really smart lawyers. The way it happened was basically uh, the, they made very skillfully the argument that genius can't sue because they don't have copyright Mm. to the lyrics. And there's a whole doctrine about this preemption, whatever. The idea basically is we're saying, hey, if I have a lyric, a sheet, a piece of paper full of lyrics um, in my uh, 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 house or like in the window of a museum and you break into the museum and you steal my lyrics paper, you can't turn around and say, wait, 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 wait. You can't get mad at me for stealing this. You don't have the copyright to the lyrics. Or another example would be if you were a video store, videotapes used to exist, and on the videotapes thing, you say, um, if you rent a tape from us, from Blockbuster, you can't copy the tape, mm-hmm. right? You can't copy all our tapes and start another Blockbuster video. And then I go and I do that. I copy all your tapes and start a Blockbuster video too, Tom Tuster video. And you try to sue me. I say, whoa, 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 you can't sue me. You don't own the copyright to these movies. You have to go convince the copyright holders for all these movies to come and sue me. And hey, by the way, maybe they like me. Maybe they're my friends. They're not going to sue me. So you are out of luck. So that's the argument we were making is you can't just come to our video store and copy everything, you know, and then go do this thing. It's insane, right? But better lawyers, smarter lawyers, more money, everything. Who knows? Like, I don't know. But what it convinced me is there's no chance you could compete (laughs) with Google. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Zero chance. And most people don't know this because I didn't know it. Most people think, you have a 1% chance. You know what I mean? Like, or a 0.1% chance. And uh, maybe I had a 1% chance and blew it. So maybe I'm just like sour grapes or whatever. But going through the experience and watching what Google did and how well they did it and how smart they were, like you might think in a lawsuit, like, oh, Google is going to, you know, do some drown you in paper. No, they just have the smartest people. They're so smart. Like, so smart, so precise, everything like a machine. You know, it's just game over, you know. And, and then we tried to take it to the Supreme Court, you know. And then we got actually closer than we thought. But, um, you know, they get the number one Supreme Court person. It's just it's like right. you can't compete with a big corporation. And so instead, what you have to do is figure out, uh, is there any place where you can uh, live without having to compete with them in that way, right? Without having to be in their house and they're, you know, you're competing with them in their house that they own. It's like you have to get a house no one owns. And that's kind of like the Ethereum idea. So this is what really put me onto Ethereum because I was just thinking, if we are playing in a normal house, we lose. And maybe the government will come in. Yeah, okay, maybe the government is more powerful than, than Google, maybe, or wants to do something, I don't know. But 
barring some kind of big change, uh, we are trying to beat Google from within the thing they control. It's not possible. So Ethereum maybe is controlled by no one. And so maybe, uh, you know, the little guy can, um, you know, win or at least have a fair fight and this kind of thing. So uh, it was a very powerful experience for me. And, um, you know, really, uh, yeah, it's just can't compete with these with these people. It's, it's, it's insane. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that was kind of my, my uh, carryover to the Ethereum world. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm surprised. I, I guess it wouldn't have been possible to argue something like, well, it's not the lyrics as such that we have copyright over, but we did the work for the process to generate those lyrics, which there is no record of anywhere. So in that way, it's our property. It's, it's not possible to make that kind of argument. So the work thing isn't there, but one thing you could say, and the thing that I actually believe was maybe true, is to say, listen, these are not lyrics. These are recording transcriptions. Mm. And a transcription of a recording is a derivative work of that recording. It's not a, um, like, we are not copying a composition of lyrics that someone made. Uh, we are transcribing a recording that someone made, and a transcription is a derivative work, and that's also a work copyright. The problem with that is that um, no uh, copyright holder is ever going to uh, say, you know, that you're allowed to make a derivative work of their thing, even though the lyric licenses that are granted uh, basically uh, in practice, let you uh, do that because when you license lyrics from a music publisher, they don't actually give you the lyrics. It's like you pay all this money and then they say, okay, go get the lyrics yourself. And then we say, well, where are they? So you have to transcribe them. So you're, you're not like for, because of the convention of the industry, uh, you can't really say that, even though everyone knows that's obviously what is uh, going on because if it weren't going on, why would Google be copying it from Genius? It's like, just get it yourself. And it's so, you know, if the, you know, so yeah, exactly. It's It's just like the, the deck is stacked, but uh, it was fun in its own way. Um, I encourage everyone to read the Wall Street Journal article or look up the, you know, the cases and you know see it. But uh, definitely, ultimately, didn't end good. So, so any takeaway advice for for people who are thinking of starting something? I mean, there's a lot of people who I think love the videos that Genius produced and and access to the lyrics, the commentary on the lyrics. But it's a hard knock life for people making like content like that uh, when someone else owns the relationship with the customer use Ethereum or I don't know, do you, do you have any other thoughts for, for people who want to build stuff and want to avoid that misery? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think genius, obviously, like I think it's like a pretty special thing and we were able to do some, you know, pretty special things. We sold the company in 2021. I think that like, yeah, digital media is really tough. You know, I think genius was able to do, you know, succeed and be great, you know, because we built this website. You know, I think the genius video content, the genius, all this stuff is, is amazing and made genius what it is today, but it's on the backbone of this website. And um, I don't know if it's possible to start a website today. <laughs> Basically, like in 2009, there's no mobile. Like you don't understand how simple it was. I just like said, oh, this is an idea for a website. You can just build a website and try to make it big. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's like just, yeah, a lot. Maybe I'm too narrow-minded just in terms of like the lyrics thing because the idea of starting a lyrics website in 2019 versus 2009, it's just like night and day. But I think it's tough. I think it's very, very tough. And, you know, at the same time, I think there are other um, options in a way. Like I think Genius, you know, we we raised a ton of money. You know, we raised $85 million. So that created a lot of, you know, it was great in a lot of ways. It gave us the ability to invest and do a lot of cool things, but also created a lot of... um, you know, uh, it's hard to do the venture capital uh, thing. And so, you know, I think there's, um, you know, maybe there are more ways to make money now that aren't, um, 
you know, you have more options. Not to say that venture capital is bad, but to say that there's maybe more, you know, funding options. And that connects to uh, uh, Ethereum. I mean, back at that day, you know, I literally knew no one. I knew Y Combinator, you know, I applied to Y Combinator, you know, so it's like, uh, now I think there are more things, but um, I think it's tough. I, I honestly think it is, it is very tough. And so that's why, you know, Ethereum at least is a question mark now. So that's mm-hmm. why I, I really, um, I really like it. Yeah, that's definitely how I feel about uh, crypto in general, blockchain in general. It's 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 a wedge. It's not a guarantee that there's a better world there. It's just an opportunity, and we'll see if it plays out. Uh, Tom, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming and explaining all this and sharing some of your personal story as well. My pleasure. And there's anyone out there who disagree with something I'm saying? Like, just I really am very open to feedback, and um, Brad has given me a lot of feedback. Other people out there giving me feedback. I really appreciate that. And I'm happy to talk to anyone who's trying to build something with these scriptures or build something in general. I'm out here. DMs are open. This is a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And yeah, looking forward to uh, having my mind changed on L2s. I would love that, by the way. Uh, I'm, I would love that. I'm rooting for L2s. So like, I'm looking forward to it. We'll see. But uh, yeah, inscriptions, decentralized way to um, you know do cheap computation and unlock future of... Ethereum and maybe save Ethereum entirely or at least prolong the death of Ethereum. So if you're into prolonging the death of something you love, uh, you are in the right place. Thank you all. Eatscriptions is necromancer technology. Uh, Tom, thanks so much. If people want to check it out, eatscriptions.com, middle March, your, uh, what is your uh, handle? It's dumb, what is it? Dumb name numbers. Dumb name numbers. It's a childish <laughs> name, but follow me, follow me. I'll retweet for more, follow for more. Uh, okay. Thank you, Tom. Thank you everybody for coming to listen. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, if you're interested in this conversation, future conversations, and especially what we talked about in L2 conversation, maybe I'll even invite you back, Tom, to, to ask some questions of the expert every week, 5 PM Eastern time, North American Eastern time. That is uh, web three galaxy brain. And you can check out the old episodes on Spotify, on Apple podcasts, et cetera. It's web three galaxy brain.com. And it gives you links to all the, all your favorite podcatcher. Thanks everybody. And see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.